Author Jeff Fernside is here to discuss Ships in the Desert, a stunning essay collection that draws on his experience as a Peace Corps volunteer in Kazakhstan, where he witnessed one of the world's worst environmental catastrophes. You're listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction Radio Program is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. The program airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and wherever you get your podcasts. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, novelists, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. I'll be back in a moment with Jeff Fernside. My guest today is author Jeff Fernside. His most recent book is Ships in the Desert. It was, was released this summer by Santa Fe Writers Project. It's a collection of linked essays about Fernside's time in the country of Kazakhstan and the broader Silk Road countries where he worked and lived as an educator and Peace Corps volunteer. At the heart of the book is a devastating environmental catastrophe at the Aral Sea, shaped by Soviet agricultural policies. And if you're thinking this sounds too far away, these stunning essays bring the subject of water rights and resources right back to the United States, drawing parallels with the Ogallala Aquifer. Joining me from Oregon is author Jeff Fernside. Jeff, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you very much, Laurie. Well, Jeff, I will confess that I'm drawn to books with a Peace Corps element because it it offers insight into a remote part of the world. But your book, Ships in the Desert, is about so much more. But we're going to use that as just an entry point. Uh, what first drew you to the Peace Corps? And, and what years were you living and working in Kazakhstan and some of the surrounding countries? I always knew I was going to go. Um, I, I think volunteers have a, a few things in common, and one is is that you really want to uh, do something meaningful in the world. Um, you want to help people. Now, you could do that in the United States, of course. There are lots of volunteer opportunities to do that in the United States. So the second thing that Peace Corps volunteers have in, col- col- uh, have in common is that they they want to uh, they have an interest in other cultures, but the interest has to be deeper than just an interest because you're going overseas to live in another country for two years. It's a two-year commitment. So you, you have to, I believe, have a third element, which is a desire to bridge different cultures. Um, and I had all three of those, those elements. I, I really wanted to make a difference, do something meaningful. I had a very strong interest in uh, seeing other cultures, and I really wanted to to bridge cultures. You were assigned to the country of Kazakhstan, um, and let's take a moment for listeners to get kind of grounded in the geography, not just of that country, but of the region, and then some of the specific areas where you landed. Because I want to say it's, it's so true what you say in the book um, that even really well-traveled um, individuals tend to lump these countries into calling them the Stans. I 
Unfortunately, I have done this myself, but Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, they're all very different countries. They share commonalities, but you were in Kazakhstan. So can you just kind of orient us to the geography? Yeah, it's kind of surprising that more people don't know where Kazakhstan is. Um, it's the geographically the ninth largest country in the world. So it's the size of four Texases put together, um, a huge country. But yeah, somehow it gets swallowed up being there in the middle of Eurasia. But uh, if you just orient yourself to two very large countries that everyone knows where they are, and that's Russia and China, then you'll know where Kazakhstan is. So Kazakhstan is to the south of Russia and to the west of China. And then the Caspian Sea is Kazakhstan's western border. There we go. Okay, so we are here in Kazakhstan with you in this book. And again, the book is titled Ships in the Desert, which is uh, an amazing title. And the cover is amazing because we actually see a ship sitting in a desert-like setting. And that desert-like setting was, is, was the Aral Sea. Tell us about the Aral Sea and why the image of that the ship that you encountered haunted you and led to this book. Well, the Aral Sea was once the world's fourth largest inland body of water. Um, so it was a freshwater system, uh, a huge, huge, huge sea with a thriving fishing industry, uh, a tourist industry. It was beautiful. It was productive. And it is now shrunk to 5% of its former self. So, and this all has happened within the course of essentially 50 or 60 years. So in terms of, uh, you know, geological time, this is almost uh, in the blink of an eye. And it's all due to, to poor water management practices, which, as I discuss in the book, occurred due to a lot of human uh, weaknesses, poor decision making. And so the story itself is epic and it's tragic. And I think that's part of the draw. And it's also tremendously sad. And there, the image of the ships sitting bolt upright in the sands as if they were still sailing and yet being surrounded by hundreds of kilometers of nothing but wasteland is so striking that once you see it, you can't help but to look at that and understand that something terrible has happened here. Um, there's this great loneliness and a sense of abandonment. And, and these ships literally were abandoned. Uh, the, the fishermen kept sailing them to the deeper part of the sea, hoping to find you know, some place where they could keep anchor. And the sea kept lowering and the sea kept lowering and the sea kept lowering. And eventually the ships bottomed out. And um, now they're sitting, you know, 100 kilometers from, from the former port cities, uh, Kazakhstan and Soralsk. And that's the city that I visited. So you were witnessing the complete collapse of what was a, a lively area, um, villages and towns where the residents relied on the sea for their well, for their life, for their income, and it had been devastated. What I was shocked to learn about in your book is that uh, a great deal of this destruction and the, the devastation of the sea was a product of Soviet agricultural policy as it related to the cotton industry. And, the co and cotton, as you describe in the book, requires a great deal 
of water. You even have this amazing imagery of the requirements to plant cotton were were so um, in, intense that there were cotton plants growing up to the windows of residents' homes. So can, tell us what you learned about the cotton crop and um, what what went wrong? Because in a, in a minute, we're going to talk about the parallels that might be very surprising to some that that are occurring in the United States. By the way, you didn't go there with the intent or the expectation to be drawn into this this world, but there it was, this destruction and this story unfolding before your eyes. No, I didn't go there uh, to witness this uh, environmental tragedy. I, I didn't even know about it before I went there, actually, surprisingly enough, uh, despite the scope of it. But um, I was based in Shimkent uh, as a teacher, an English language teacher, uh, which is in the southern part of Kazakhstan, um, a steppe region. And cotton is grown in this region. Um, as it is throughout much of Central Asia. And then there's a couple of things you, you, you'll see any self-respecting city in uh, the former Soviet Union have. One of them is uh, uh, numer- are numerous water fountains everywhere. Because water is so scarce, I guess they feel uh, th- that they want to celebrate it. But uh, I always found it a little bit wasteful. The other thing is, is it, right in the middle of Shimkent is a, is a statue of a cotton blossom. And that goes to show just how important it is to the regional economy. It, it right. makes sense in some ways because it, in some ways it is a, an ideal region to grow cotton, provided that you have enough water. Now, the Soviets thought they had enough water, but the plans that they concocted in order to bring the water needed to uh, the cotton fields were not very well thought out. Um, and they were put through anyway because of the demand for cotton. Cotton is a useful product. Uh, it can be sold all over the world. It brings in a lot of money. And I think the, the thinking of the Soviets was, was, well, you know, we'll just bring in water from somewhere else. We'll just irrigate these fields. And where did most of the water come from? Well, not the Aral Sea itself, but it came from the two main rivers that feed the Aral Sea. And by draining off these two rivers, of course, what the Soviets were doing was cutting off the flow of life into the Aral Sea. And that's when the sea began to dry up. This is a landlocked sea we're talking about. It's a landlocked sea. It's a landlocked country. And we have dust uh, being blown in these noxious storms. Uh, Noxious because of all the chemicals from cotton. And that's what really led me to write this book is I saw this tragedy and it was sad, and yes, uh, that alone is worth something, but it's a tragedy we are now seeing play itself out in different ways around the world, including here in the United States. And Exactly. To me, this, it was, okay, this happened, and there's not much we can do about the Aral Sea anymore, but we can look at that and we can learn some lessons from it and we can maybe try to head off some of the things that are happening right here in our own backyard. What you have described, Jeff, is a, a local problem that became a regional problem and is now an international example of what can happen if we don't have the proper balance in a state-run agricultural policy. And again, you were living in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan, in a country that 
I think for anyone who has even a passing interest would associate with um, a great deal of institutional corruption, just things that exist. You saw this with your own eyes and you heard it from your students. You have this, uh, you had a line that, a quote that someone said to you, and it was that the United States is just as corrupt as Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, but it's just a matter of openness versus hidden. So at a different point in the book, and I want to pivot just to the United States for a bit, you make a comparison to the Ogallala Aquifer. Um, that's pretty compelling. And what parallels did you see between what you witnessed in Kazakhstan and the Aral Sea and the Ogallala Aquifer? Well, there, there's a couple of things there. And, and one is the issue of corruption. And then the other is the issue of uh, the, the falling levels of the Ogallala Aquifer. Um, but what ties them together, and is, as you mentioned here, is, is from that quote from a young man that I, I had met. He, he was a scholar who had been in the United States. And so he had a point of comparison to make. And it's, it's the hidden versus openness. Um, in terms of the Ogallala Aquifer, um, being an aquifer, it is hidden, right? It's underground. And I think that's why we don't really think of it often or pay any attention to it. Um, it's typical human nature. If we can't see it, it's really not on our minds. But this is um, the largest uh, source of uh, underground water source uh, in America. It, it covers uh, basically the entire Midwest and, and Plain state, States region. And um, tremendously, tremendously important um, water source that is being tapped at unprecedented rates due to mass industrial farming. We're drawing more water than the aquifer can replenish. And as a result, it's falling. It's falling at a rate that is, is so steep that experts are saying, if, if we don't do something about it, we will deplete the aquifer before the end of the century. Um, that would turn the entire middle United States into a dust bowl. Uh, this would be a tragedy uh, as large as anything we have seen environmentally in our lifetimes in the United States. Right, right. Well, you know, what, what's also compelling about your book is that you, uh, you talk about efforts to regenerate the RLC. Um, I th and I, and you can walk us through this. I, I, I'm trying to remember if it was a spe specific to Kazakhstan or whether it was a broader regional effort to get the sea back into a lively state. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, so is there something that can be done with these immense water sources that are so vital to the planet? Um, is there anything hopeful happening on these fronts? Well, um, I wish I had better news. Um, Unfortunately, most of what I found is, is a little disheartening. And, and instead of learning the proper lessons, we're repeating possible, we're repeating past mistakes and possible mistakes. Um, one thing the Soviets considered very, very strongly, and it has come up at numerous points, including fairly recently, um, is diverting Siberian rivers into the Aral Sea in order to replenish it. Now, the thinking is, is there's plenty of water in Siberia. There's not very much water in Central Asia. Let's just take this water that we're not using and, and funnel it down there and, and, and fix the problem. But as, as I try to point out in the book um, very strongly, 
when you change something in one region, it's going to affect a whole lot mm. of other pieces to the puzzle. Nothing exists by itself. Everything is linked. And uh, if you begin shuttling water from Siberia into Central Asia, you're going to create a whole host of new problems, not only in Siberia, but probably every step along the way. Uh, fortunately, they haven't done that. But what are we talking about here in America? Right now, the American West is going through a, a, a horrific drought, and we're watching Lake Mead fall to historic lows. And the talk is now is, well, how can we divert water from the East to the West. And this is something that's come up periodically in our history. Um, there have been talks in, in my lifetime of, of diverting water from the Great Lakes, for example. Well, the Great Lakes, this is a classic example of how delicate the balance of nature is. The Great Lakes are a very, very specific ecosystem. They uh, replenish at the rate of only 1% per year. The watershed is very, very narrow around the Great Lakes region. Um, if you begin piping water out of the Great Lakes to feed the West, there's no alternative input in order to replace that water in the Great Lakes. Uh, therefore, you would be feeding the West at the expense of the Great Lakes, which, by the way, uh, are having their own issues. Now, to, to answer the second part of your question, um, there have been efforts in Kazakhstan in particular, Uzbekistan has unfortunately not been able to address the issue uh, due to monetary concerns. But uh, a, a dam was built that did prevent some of the water in what is called the Little Aral Sea. So the Aral Sea, which, uh, as I mentioned before, was once the world's fourth largest inland body of water, it, it's since broken into three separate bodies of water. And we've been able to save about 5% of the original sea, and most of that's located in what is now called the Little Aral and um, a dike project uh, has, has uh, stabilized that area. And uh, we are seeing a return of the fish. Uh, we are seeing the sea come closer to the former port uh, of Aralsk. It's not there yet, but it's closer. Um, it's some measure of stability. It's something that can be called cautiously a success. 95% um, of the sea is still gone. So um, to me, it's a, it's a muted success. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You, and you, what you're talking about here is so important because we're, we're thinking about what's happening. It's a delicate balance of nature. And we're living in a society with very polarized language. And for me, what sets ships in the desert apart. And again, I'll remind listeners, my guest today is Jeff Fernside. His new book has just been released this summer. What sets this book apart for me is that in your role as a Peace Corps volunteer in Kazakhstan, it's a pretty unique space. And um, you, you talk a lot about the importance of open dialogue, of listening to uh, dissenting opinions, and the importance of, of that on our just our humanity, our creativity, and how it helps us to flourish as human beings. And I thought, so I want to just circle back around to that because when we're engaged in these big uh, environmental discussions or, or any important discussion, it's so important to maintain a, uh, an open dialogue, which is in short supply these days. Yes, yes. Um, 
You were in the Central Asian region just before a lot of social media platforms came online. And you talk about how shocking it was when you returned to the United States. But what what do you reflect on when it comes to culture, religion, uh, and the importance of open dialogue in not just the RLC catastrophe, but in any important issue we're trying to make progress on? I think for me, openness is is the key to empathy. And I don't mean that in the sense of openness as, uh, you know, we all need to be extroverts. Um, I mean, openness in the sense of having an open attitude, uh, an open heart. Um, probably the greatest gift I was given in living overseas was having my worldview opened in ways that it never could have had I uh, stayed in the in the United States, I think. Uh, it, it's different for everybody. But for me, uh, having that broadening experience was so uh, life-altering and so important. And um, I think what you say, Lori, is exactly right. I mean, the times we live in now are so polarized. Uh, I think social media has certainly contributed to that polarization. Um, we're, we're living in a, a time when we all just enter our own echo chambers and uh, uh, shout into them. And um, we, 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 we're not engaging with each other anymore. We're too entrenched into our own positions and we're talking at each other because we're trying to convince each other of something rather than talking openly about it. Yeah, it's not it's not a light switch. It's a no, it's a process. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's something and it's a process that needs constant recalibration. And I yes. think again what is so remarkable about this collection of essays is that you have a deep literary literature background, and you brought that long view of discourse into a complicated issue, again, a, a bit by accident, but here it does play, ha, here's how it plays out beautifully in this book, Ships in the Desert. What has this, this kind of enhanced worldview done for you? What kind of projects do you like to work on? And what do you see yourself working on next? Well, going overseas and living there and, and being there for four years um, and getting married there, you know, making so many friends there. It was so, so impactful on me that uh, certainly it's, it's affected how I write. I've always been interested in global issues, but I'm more interested in them than ever. I, I don't think I would be able to write anything, at least now and in the near future, that doesn't somehow connect to to issues that are happening around the world because that the world has gotten so small too is, is the other part of it. It's not just that I've grown and am widening my views in the world, but the world is shrinking and it coming closer to me all the time. And I'm meeting it somewhere in the middle. And um, that's just where my interest is for sure. You know, I, I do come from a literary background. I, I also worked as a journalist uh, for a few years and, and so I'm really glad, Lori, that you, you picked up on all the different elements that were in the book, because I really deliberately was trying to bring in, I guess, what you might call the, uh, my, uh, uh, the whole range of my writer's toolkit uh, to this particular collection of essays. 
You know, I, I, I wanted it to be a travel log to a degree. I, I wanted it to be a literary, uh, literary journalism to a degree. I wanted it to be a memoir to a degree. I wanted it to be, you know, fact-based, science-based uh, research to a degree. Because these were my experiences, uh, you know, as a human, these, uh, these were where my interests were. And then, of course, that final piece, which was the, the human element of it. Um, I, I hope that comes through in these essays, uh, the, 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 the sense of, of how, despite how much tragedy there is in the world, and how much work we have to do, that there's still so much beauty and wonder in it and that it's worth working for. More than anything, that, that's what drives me to write. Um, I don't always feel hopeful, quite frankly. I'll be honest about that. Sometimes I wake up and I feel uh, we're on a, a track that is irreversible. But I always feel a sense of wonder. And I find that in nature and I find that in the world. And that keeps me going. That keeps me writing. Yeah. I think what you've done is presented essays that speak to um, uh, our, almost our human obligation to try to improve the world and summon a, a path that can create a kind of resilience if we're coming at it from the right direction and with a sense of, of purpose and openness. And that's what I, I, I really love about this book. In my view, again, it is a, a type of literary journalism at its finest. And again, my, my guest today is Jeff Fernside. The book is Ships in the Desert. It is a new release from Santa Fe Writers Project, which is a favorite indie publisher on this program. And Jeff, I can't thank you enough for spending time with Real Fiction today. This, I've learned so much. Well, Lori, I, I really can't thank you enough. Um, I appreciate your interest not only in the book, but just in these issues. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction Radio Program is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. All Real Fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com, where you can learn more about today's guest. Thanks for listening.